The Book Thingo podcast is a lively discussion about romance books, culture, and female bodies. This is episode 44 featuring Dr. Lauren Rosewarn at OzPod in Sydney. Book Thingo would like to acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which this episode was recorded, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We also acknowledge the contributions of Aboriginal Australians to our shared literary heritage. Welcome to the Book Thingo Podcast, talking about books we love, especially romance. Kill a fairy fast on the Book Thingo Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Book Thingo Podcast. I'm Kat Mayo from bookthingo.com.au, an Aussie blog for romance readers. And today I asked our audio producer, Rudy Bremer, to co-host the show with me. The reason for this is that our guest, Dr. Lauren Rosewarn, has been on Rudy's wish list of people we need to have on the show. And she's genius because this interview ended up being such an interesting and thought-provoking conversation. I look forward to hearing your opinions on the stuff we cover in this episode. But first, let me introduce our guest. Dr. Lauren Rosewarn is a senior lecturer in the School of Social and Political Sciences at the University of Melbourne. Lauren has written some super interesting opinion essays on female sexuality, taboos, and popular culture. We talk very frankly about some of these topics, so this is not a safe-for-work episode, unless, of course, your work involves talking about sex. You can find information on all the books and articles we talk about in this episode by going to bookthingo.com.au slash podcast and clicking on episode number 44. actually the only non-pro here I know. between the three of us. I'm like the amateur. <laughs> anyway. Welcome to your podcast. <laughs> Thanks, Rudy. <laughs> We're joined today by Dr. Lauren Rosewarn, who is an academic at the University of Melbourne and writes about various topics, including gender, sexuality and taboos, which fits in very nicely with the stuff that Rudy and I love to talk about in romance fiction and pop culture in general. Excellent. Thank you for having me. I think there's something really fascinating in talking about taboos. And I guess actually what we should probably do first is when we talk about taboos um, and we put it in sort of a pop culture context and a context of your work, it's often around things that are really normal for women. So it's things like menstruation and menopause and the female bodies, masturbation. Yeah. And I, I think it's really fascinating that that's, that's what we often find as cultural taboos. Yeah, I think there's a number of explanations for that. So I should say most of my work situates on that juncture between cultural topics that we find difficult to deal with and media representations of them and how the media representations both inform our knowledge of these topics and provide a kind of informal education as well as in the reverse in terms of how they reflect our own experiences back to us. But yeah, you're right. There is something distinctly gendered about the things that we find gross, disgusting, embarrassing to talk about. Now that could be because, or well, it probably is because there's such perceived mystery about the female body. 
partly that's because, again, female bodies are assumed as cavernous, mysterious places where, you know, you might get your penis bitten off. But there's also the fact that doctors for a long time looked at women's bodies quite differently than they did for men's bodies, you know, assumed that women's bodies were just a slight variation on men's, in which case women's medicine took a lot longer to actually start as a discipline. And I think that's probably one of the explanations as well as sort of menstruation being for a long time in history, simply mysterious, you know. How did women bleed for five days, for seven days, and not die, as that, you know, cliche and sitcom jokes go? But it was a mystery. And there was all these assumptions, you know, is it something to do with the moon? Is it because they're witches? <laughs> and I think it's an, in, you know, it took a while for that actually to come into an understanding of actually, you know, that's key in reproduction. I guess what is kind of interesting from, I suppose, the perspective of, people like Kat and I who read romance, is that some of these taboos do factor into the books. I mean, masturbation you're going to find in romance novels. Although... A little bit. I'm, I'm actually really surprised that we don't have... Well, I don't think we have enough masturbation in romance fiction. There's definitely not. But also, but like I have noticed a trend of like phone sex. So there's there's masturbation, but like... But like mutual, it has to have yeah. the other person somewhere else like a, an online chat or a, a phone call or text message um what's it called sexting sexting like, so the young people call them today Rudy the kids <laughs> but that's exactly in line with how it is presented in film and tv where masturbation is for the viewer's pleasure as opposed to it to be something that women can actually find enjoyable in and of itself, it's always a performance for an imagined audience. And therefore, I can suspect that in romance novels and other kinds of genres, unless it's there in a way that titillates the man, unless it's as part of a sex act in terms of mutually pleasurable, the idea of a woman just doing it on her own bucks a lot of cultural taboos and also bucks the stereotype of a romance novel that you're eventually going to find satisfaction in a relationship as opposed to on your own. And I think certainly part of the reason feminists have been so interested in masturbation is that this creates this capacity for fulfilment away from the penis. And that's a sort of considered still even today as a renegade portrayal. Are there any films or TV shows that you can think of that do masturbation scenes well? Hmm. From a feminist perspective. Look, Black Swan is considered to be one of the interesting um, modern female masturbation scenes, but even then it's tied to craziness. And I think we need to think that this is a, there's probably no pure or perfect masturbation scene. It's getting better though. And I think part of the reason that we don't see more of it, I suspect why we don't see more of it in romance novels, and also part of the reason we don't have more menstruation scenes as well, doesn't drive the plot. And I think that's, we can have all the feminist cynical reasons as to why, you know, the patriarchal explanations, but the other explanation is a storytelling one. We don't also see characters brush their teeth very often. We don't have laborious passages of vitamin taking, but these are things that people do every day. I think unless there's a narrative reason for it, uh, you tend not to see this kind of stuff happen. So that's probably why, particularly around menstruation, when it is included in a film or television episode, it's a disaster, it's dramatic, it's so social suicide, because that does say something about the character or driver plot, as opposed to the mundaneness of something that happens every 28 days. Is this really worth having a storyline around? There are two things about that that I find interesting, though. So the first is that it echoes what you just said, because a lot of the time when we see menstruation in a romance novel, it's the signal that the 
heroin is not pregnant. pregnant. Yeah. But the other thing that I find really interesting is that anal sex is becoming not really very taboo in romance fiction anymore, but sex while you you have your periods is almost never seen in romance at all. Yeah. I had a journal article maybe 18 months ago published about the changing portrayal of heterosexual anal sex in film and television. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. I think pornography is probably the biggest factor there where we're seeing it more. Now, I don't have this perception of the media as you see it, therefore you want to do it. But it does put it on the table as another thing that can be on your sexual repertoire. And then it creates the capacity of curiosity. I've been doing some uh interviews with young people around sexuality and every single one of them spoke about anal sex. That's 19 year olds and that is on their agenda. Most of them hadn't done it. Most of them were talking about it in a kind of, I'm curious, but I'm not sure if I want to go down that path. I don't think that would have been the case a generation ago, unless you were a heavy pornography consumer. And even then, most of the porn prior to the internet was actually magazines. It's harder to tell that anal sex is happening in a still image, much like even in film and TV. I had a student once asked in class why is there so much anal sex in Game of Thrones I said to them do you know it's anal and I know that sounds <laughs> kind of almost graphic and anatomically kind of comment but because of the way but you know the, the lack of graphicness of most episodes even though Game of Thrones has got a lot of nudity you're not seeing penetration literal penetration literal pen <laughs> literal <laughs> penetration that you can't actually tell which orifice is being penetrated so you might want to take away from that scene oh that's an anal scene but it could also be a rear entry vaginal scene as well I actually am thinking back to when I was when I was a baby romance reader and I just really didn't realize that you could do vaginal penetration from behind like I just I assumed that doggy style was anal I wasn't, I don't consider myself to have ever actually had the sort of moment of naivety, but that said, it took a while, you know, probably a similar age to realise you could also have anal in a missionary style position because portrayals of homosexual anal sex always was a doggy style position as opposed to, in fact, there's, you know, pretty much every vaginal position you can do anally. And that's because we don't talk about it. There's no formal sex education at schools that includes an anal sex curriculum unless it's simply to say it's a more riskier practice that's going to end up giving you HIV. Yeah, it, it isn't It isn't part of the normal curriculum for sex education. Equally, we don't want to talk about masturbation in any great detail, which I think is interesting because the idea that you can actually, A, that horniness is natural, that you're going to feel that even if you're in a box, you know, brought up in a bubble away from every cult. You know, we have this perception, particularly from some sections of the media, conservative media, who like to assume that sexualization is something that happens to young people as opposed to, no, that's natural. We're supposed to feel sexual. We're supposed to feel horny. And I think that's a an example of uh, when you don't get education about topics, you know, not just what is happening to my body, but what can I do about these feelings that sex actually isn't the only option? And I think that really, once people start to know that, the idea of, you know, necessarily having intercourse as being the only answer to sexual satisfaction would really change. That that dynamic about age of first intercourse, I suspect, would happen a little bit later in some cases. I was wondering, because this is this is one of those topics that impacts so many people. How did you become interested in it as an area of work and research? Hmm. 
I think I've always been a bit messed up, not in a not in a clinical or diagnostic sense, but a story that I tell in my book, Part-Time Perverts, which is a book about sexual perversion or what we consider to be non-vanilla sexuality. I tell a story about when I was 11 and, you know, how you prank call people. My prank calls, and even now as I say this, it's going to sound somewhat alarming, but it's old news and my dad often still reminds me of this, which is weird. I used to ring photographers and ask them about prices of staging these kind of pseudo-bestiality scenes. They weren't going to have actually include intercourse, but they were going to be five naked adults and three dogs and a horse. Even now looking back, is that normal behaviour for an 11-year-old? And the thing is, Dad often will recount this story as a funny sort of, you know, well, clearly something. And I'm like, Dad, why didn't you intervene then if you (laughs) saw this and you thought this was strange? Like, and he slightly off topic I had a a serial killer pen pal for a while when I was 14 I'd forgotten about it until dad mentioned it recently I said dad again an opportunity where you could have intervened and you didn't and his argument was would it have stopped you and I think that's a good question I guess because I seemed otherwise adjusted my parents weren't too worried about this slightly fringe behavior so when you say when did it start it started a long time before I could actually sell it as a legitimate career path and a legitimate yeah a profession and and yeah an academic inquiry you know while we're sharing we did Kat and I had a discussion on the podcast a while back where I talked about what was clearly part of my career path and it was my early stalking behavior and that I did a lot of research on authors that I loved and I found out like where they would be and where they were going to stay and how to how to meet them right and then couldn't convince anybody to go with me so like I was sort of so you couldn't get other people to participate in crimes (laughs) yes And we hadn't met now yet I, then, and I, <laughs> I was about to say, perhaps <laughs> you know, she would have found a, another partner. Look, if, I, if I'd if i have found, yeah, look, if teenage Rudy had found an accomplice, yes. I'd have been a different person, but now I, I've, I don't know. Although um, perhaps that was saying perhaps that's not the best way to meet people. Well, I've, I've kind of legitimised my stalking <laughs> now as a, as a journalist. Yes, yeah. Now so when you call them and ask them to come on for a chat, it doesn't look as dodgy as it would yeah. have, you know, knock at the door of the Hyatt at midnight. Exactly. Yeah. Which With I the mean... fake room service. <laughs> Please don't give her ideas, I worked, please. I worked for a hotel for a while. <laughs> of course you did. <laughs> yes. And you used to climb into the tra- in those trolleys that they do. Oh, yeah, they used the to because they'd send around emails about the VVIPs and I'd be like, oh, should I, should I organise to be on shift that day? <laughs> we all have to yeah. make career oh decisions. That's it. Ones. Exactly. <laughs> Although I actually do write about that in part-time perverts where I do think for some professions or some people do go into professions that allow them to engage in activity in a kind of legitimate way. Now, I think I did it. You did it, you know, a, a little bit, but I think you sort of see it on the extreme level as well. You know, you, um, you know, I'm trying to make us feel better about our own career choices. We're okay. We're not doing it in a law-breaking way. You are, if you've gone into gynecology, to be a creep. That's yeah. a different end of the spectrum. Yeah. I'm now just doing like a mental <laughs> assessment of my gynecologist, but it's fine. I'll give you another example. The director is it Darren Afonsky, the director of Mother. I'm not pronouncing mm. his surname correctly, but Darren A. He gave an interview about 10 years ago about why he likes shooting sex scenes. And he, he admitted he likes watching people have sex. It's another example. His profession has allowed him to do behavior that outside of that profession would look dodgy. 
Yeah, actually, that's that's a pretty good example. And like, I'm I'm always so fascinated with the people that choreograph the sex scenes. Like, I think oh, that I, that's I was reading really an article the other week about stunt women who seem to be spending a lot more time choreographing rape scenes, and the impact it has on not just them but on the actual actors, not just the female actors but also the male actors who have to to be the the assailants, I guess. And the article talked about the fact that it really did have an effect on people, even people who knew that they were just acting and it wasn't real. Well, that's, I suppose, like with molestation scenes with children, how very careful they have to be in shooting those and having the child only on set for certain parts because they know that this is actually going to be really troublesome material and that we need to handle it really, really carefully. So this kind of segues into a really interesting question that I haven't quite settled in my head myself yet. So we often talk about problematic books in romance fiction and probably the most famous one of those at the moment would be Fifty Shades of Grey, where the material itself has really troubling aspects if you assume that that behaviour was real-life behaviour. The argument against that is that, you know, women are allowed to have escapist fiction, women are allowed to read things that are problematic and process it themselves. Where is the ethical line around writing these sorts of stories, do you think? Or is there one? Can I ask the question first, is Fifty Shades of Grey considered a romance novel? Or is this a definition? Okay, I just, I guess I never would have assumed I would have used the erotic, erotic literature label, which I guess... I make a distinction. Is there much? It's not a genre. I, I read well, Ten Bodies in the Basement books most of the time. <laughs> That's my I mean, favourite. There's a, it's in that intersection, I think, where it gets a little bit blurry. Okay. Mm. Because it does have a happy ending at the end. Usually, we would, But you'd have to have read all three yeah, books. We usually so standalone, it's not considered. No. Okay. I consider Sorry. I, I, I no, answered but a question. It's I a answered... really good question because we have this argument amongst romance readers as well. Okay. Okay, I, I did the politician answering a question with a question. <laughs> this question about consent I think is an interesting one. In pornography, for example, a big criticism of it is you never see condoms used, you never see them put on, you never see boundaries being negotiated. And I think that is a fair criticism. You don't see that. But who watches pornography for a sex education lesson? And I think the idea is if I were watching porn with a scene where we're seeing a laborious, you know, oh, my God, I ripped the condom, let's do it again, blah, 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 blah. Uh, do you want to do this? I'm into this, blah, blah, blah. I don't want to listen to any of that. I have been studying this stuff for years. I just want to watch the porn. I just want to masturbate and end this whole session. I don't want any more than this. And I guess there's an, an application to discussing in romance novels is the purpose there to provide an education lesson to audiences? Is it the role of any romance novel to give a potted gender studies lecture to the readers or is it there for entertainment? Because if it's there for entertainment, you're there to titillate mildly, maybe a lot depending on the genre. You're there to tell a story. And in stories, and as someone who, who writes fiction myself, I guess there is this balance that you have to strike between balancing your politics versus balancing tension and sexiness in a scene and not disrupting it with a discussion about ethics. I almost feel, and I'm sure I'll walk out of the studio feeling differently or at least changing my mind perhaps, but I almost feel the ethics are for the audience and for the academics to debate. I don't think it's the role of the producer to or, or the writer to be that educator because 
again, it's too much of a burden. It's the same as, you know, the ongoing question about why have film and television not had more realistic portrayals of gays, lesbian, transgender, you name it. Is it their job? I'd like more realistic portrayals, don't get me wrong, but they're not there, you know, to step in and replace all of the gaps in our school education. And I think this gets back to oh, a question you didn't ask, but I'll answer it, <laughs> is about the question of what is the impact of watching lots of rape scenes or reading lots of rape scenes, for example. I don't think there is an impact because it's only one drop in the ocean of our cultural influences. And I'd like to think, yeah, you've just watched a watched a film or read a scene that has some ambiguous consent, right? I'd like for you to think about that more as a reader, but you're also going to get other messages from other sources in your life. The idea that one video, one movie, one uh, video game is that influential on behaviour. It's not proven by any media effects research. So I think, yeah, I like the fact that we talk about consent now. I like that we're uh, more attuned to it. I think, however, it's a bit of a noose for writers, particularly around, I know for myself, about can you ever be intersectional enough as a feminist writer? Can I give nods to enough issues in my writing? And I think it's a burden that's impossible to fulfill. I've recently uh, finished writing a piece for Mianjin about this very topic, about this sort of burden for feminists being everything to everyone. You can't be. So therefore you put yourself out there and get scrutinised and that's a gendered thing as well. Well, yeah, see, that's when it starts to get really... You start to get a lot of criticism from people about, you know, this book is an issues book and this this scene is an issues. I've seen some people do the kind of educating in the scene moment well in books. I think Cara McKenna did quite an impressive job in the serial that I was reading and telling you about last week Kat, be and in I the was show so annoyed that <laughs> I didn't realize that it was a serial because it ended weirdly oh so it was a book you read in the yeah middle of, I okay. read I read one of the books because it had been recommended and it was it was a BDSM book but they were blue collar workers and I was like Ooh, awesome because yeah. like it's so always often, so much so much money and... to buy all the equipment <laughs> yeah whereas this is like this is and a hero <laughs> The cleaning is going to be the issue. Yeah, and so this is a hero who, like, by day he works construction. He's also, um, he's a boxer. Like, he's just this, like, rugged dude. And he's very, like, put off by the whole idea of, like, props and all that kind of... He's like, oh, that's all a bit shit and I really can't be bothered. But he's into the role play okay. of, like, of dominance. The heroine is a waitress. But she's like, she's also a little bit like floundering in her life. But they they have because she's kind of new into to sort of the concept of the kinds of role play he wants to do. They do a lot of negotiating and sort of. I think the first the first scene they ever do together, she specifically says to him, "Is there is there like a training wheels version to this? Because I'm not sure that I'm ready for like full on." And he's like, "Yeah, cool. We can like." will build up to stuff and and it's kind of it's kind of nice to watch them develop in that way and it is cold it's and brutal games of, and something else and that's but, part know. of the storyline though yeah. isn't it you know, i'm assuming the here thing, that like, you're it's... progressing to a relationship therefore we're not only really negotiating the actual sex we're negotiating our parameters as well exactly and so like because i i didn't realize that it was going to be as full-on as it 
ended up being but like because they start slowly by the by the end i'm like yep cool i'm i'm so here for this like faux rape scene like it's yeah so people like Kara McKenna have done it well um Lila Pace did an I like interesting Lila Pace's book except I just pretend that it ended happily because I didn't want to read the second and third book <laughs> there's there's only two. Oh, is there I don't yeah know. why did you not want to read the second if you like because I thought it was done and oh okay you like, like a, a vague ending at the end but how I was like you, no no how do you know done. though you don't want more you look honestly you should read the second one because you do actually get a proper happy ending but like honestly I was just there for the titillation so. <laughs> and also everyone was talking much. about it so this, this book uh called I think it's called asking for it okay yeah um it was um, uh, published as a mainstream erotic romance I guess erotic slash contemporary romance but the hero and heroine there they were heavily into rape fantasy rape king to the point where the heroine couldn't orgasm unless she was in the middle of a sort of rape type scenario and then the ending of the first book was the hero sort of not wanting to keep doing that anymore and she being like well that's that's what i like well they're both survivors of abuse of sexual abuse i think that was one of the issues with the book actually the the rape fantasy or their preference for rape fantasy came out of both of them came out of from abuse um that it needed to be something that had to be got over which is similar to some of the 50 shades yeah. of Grey criticism and it's all yeah exactly and it's also a criticism i've got of a lot of non-vanilla sexual presentations in any medium where there's a tendency to provide us an explanation of why these characters are like they are that there must be some sort of underlying pathology because otherwise you wouldn't be into non-normal stuff and i think there is a you know there's a cost to doing this because even then, even though you're presenting uh, non-vanilla sexual behaviour, you're still condemning it by saying that it's associated with mental it's illness or trauma. Yeah, and that it's not normal. And I think that's not a progressive presentation. I think that's a very old-fashioned going back to Freudian interpretations of any sexual behaviour that deviated from, you know, almost reproductive sex. What's the role of popular culture in helping women work through some of these issues i feel like for romance you know i used to say that romance was like a feminist genre and then i kind of um after having talked to a lot of people who basically said very similar things that you did lauren that it's too heavy a burden to place on writers in that genre to be like spokespeople for feminism all the time um the more i sort of read the genre and read the writings around the genre the more i think it's really just a reflection of where women are in feminism and we're basically using these novels to work our way through some of the issues and the patriarchal sort of um, assumptions that we've made. Particularly if you're heterosexual, I think, and a feminist, there's a lot of burdens on your shoulder in terms of managing dueling, if not more, identities. That was something I wrote um, my book, Cheating on the Sisterhood, about, was this topic. I was at that stage a mistress to to a man involved with with someone else. And I wrote a book that was kind of intellectualising this question of how do you manage being a feminist? as well as all of your other competing identity tugs. 
And I look back and I, obviously I'm not the same person as I was when I wrote that book, but I still feel every single day, I still feel uh, competing allegiances. And I think that idea of, you know, we often talk about guilty pleasures in, in terms of reading romance novels or, or anything that's considered to be feminine behavior. And I think that's sexism. <laughs> that's not about liking romance novels as being a guilty pleasure. It's because we're in a culture that ranks culture, high and lowbrow culture, and anything to do with women is considered to be less than so I think that's part of that in terms of I think Fifty Shades of Grey I, I only read extra I only read the dirty bits and even then it wasn't enough I couldn't even get through those <laughs> yeah I just I just there was I found a website that had them all and I was like all right I'll just read those you know the list of the dirty bits but it I don't know anyway it gave voice to women who wanted to talk about sexual behavior and fantasies that they hadn't had the words for. I think that's a good thing. I think it's been exploited in a lot of ways that haven't been helpful for women. I think now it's given fuel to, you know, men's rights activists and the pickup artists who basically think every woman at the heart of her <laughs> wants to be thrown up on against the wall by a stranger. When the very best. No, no, we want the helicopter rides. <laughs> the I think they got the wrong take-home message from there. <laughs> but my favourite quote I ever, in all of my research that I've ever done, I came across was about this concept of rape fantasy, which was rape fantasy is when Robert Redford won't take no for an answer. And I like it. We can update it. That was a quote from the 70s. We can update it to Roy and Gosling or anyone else. But really, this idea of even calling it rape fantasy is such a wrong. We don't have a better language for it. You know, consent or non-consent, it's a bit wordy. We go back to rape fantasy. It's not rape in the way that uh, pickup artists love to use and throw back this word at women. So I think that uh, I'm, I'm giving you a long answer to a complicated question, but I think on one hand, Fifty Shades of Grey allows women to experiment with their sexuality in a way that seems like everyone else is doing it. There's a kind of safety in numbers thing happening for women, so that's positive. I think the negative on their sexuality is this assumption that at every woman's core she wants this. And also that's problematic because what you want with one partner may not be what you want with the next partner or what you want one night. You may never want to do it again. And I think that the nuance of consent, I think we don't talk enough about that. Yeah, I was up for it last week. That's not a carte blanche for the rest of my life. <laughs> and that these things have to be renegotiated as well across the course of a relationship. We're getting pretty close to needing to let you go. Is there something? I don't know. Else? I'm so excited. This discussion has been so good. <laughs> Ten minutes after Lauren leaves, I'm going to be like, oh my God, I should have asked like a million so other questions. So many questions. I am more than oh, happy to come back. Look, been I, I feel like, okay, because one, one of the biggest taboos that I can think of in romance, and it's something that is like such a, it's actually one of your pet hates, even though you say that you don't have hated tropes oh okay this is not going to be the same as my I don't even know if you realize what I mean um is about adultery and it's about like cheating and it, it like it's one of those things that just it's a trope that can happen in romance but people just oh it's divisive even off-page implied cheating can often be very very problematic for but readers. then there's also because like it's I feel like one of my favorite tropes actually falls within the kind of adultery cheating sort of things. And it's the one where like she's engaged to the wrong person. 
Like, I love that because well, so I read a lot of historicals. That's okay. interesting because in romance, that's allowed. That's what I mean. Yeah, but I, you're not I married. Would, but you're technically, not committed, right? But technically, that's like that. Exactly. And it's such a. So I, I know that people who are like not hardline, don't like cheating, would still read uh, She's Engaged to the Wrong Guy. Look, I think there's a lot of explanations for that. I think partly because romance novels have a tendency to be conservative and that's conservative in the sense that everyone gets their happy ending. You can't have everyone getting their happy ending at the end of a romance novel. And something I've been writing about, I have a book on all weird topics, Christmas films coming out at the end of this (gasps) year. Oh, my God. And (laughs) in it I have a chapter where I talk about the mind-boggling, and we're talking close to a hundred examples that I just found of women whose husbands had died in a Christmas narrative. Now, yeah, that happens to women, but it doesn't happen that often to women in their twenties. Why that's done is to free her up for romance. They can't, in a Christmas narrative, have her married and then have her have an affair. Not okay, because Christmas films at the heart are conservative. So much like a romance novel, you have to create the capacity for her to be freed from the shackles of her last relationship, and that's usually his death. His death frees her, you know, and as many single widowed single mums as there are, there's even more single fathers. And that's an anomaly, you know, 6% of American households are headed by an, a, a widowed father, right? Really low. On Christmas films, it's like every second one. And again, it's to justify a winter romance narrative. And I think that's probably one of the explanations with the engaged, the engaged sort of mix that you spoke about. If they haven't been married, the engaged person can go and find love again and not be soiled goods the other thing is that often in films and i'm more familiar with films than than romance novels is that the engaged character the other partner will often have done something wrong it may not be a romantic wrong it might be an embezzlement a crime etc that then leaves an out that he's the wrong person because of these reasons which justifies an exit and lubricates the way to the to the real love that they should be with it's a moist moist it's a moist glide (laughs) i wanted to ask um before we ran out of time about the last taboo in romance and i don't have research data on this but i think it's fairly safe to say that that would be abortion not incest no well not incest incest is a thing now in erotic it's a very uh, specific type of incest though it's the step relationship like pornography yeah yeah because again it's illegal you know it's the same as bestiality we've got laws in the country about what you can and can't watch Mm. Mm. but yeah so so there's kind of abortion is the last taboo i think abortion i don't know if you'd agree with me really it seems to be well it's not very conservative is it to have also generally speaking if you're thinking that you are coupling with your forever partner why would you not want a child to be the manifestation of all that love why indeed? Although it does, I, it, now that you say it, and again, not not a genre I'm familiar with, but I would feel that that would be a jarring insertion into a, a narrative about an unwanted pregnancy. I could imagine yeah. a narrative sort of around the an unexpected pregnancy journey to finding love with the guy and realising that the baby's all I've ever wanted. But the idea of thinking about an abortion... But I think it's to do with the... It's actually the, the notion that a woman might not want to have children that I think is almost But um, like actively doesn't want to have children because it's not just, it's not that she's, it's not, not that she just lost that the baby she or anything doesn't or want to carry a baby. Because, yeah, because there's a lot of, there's, 
There's a lot of miscarriages in romance as a plot point. But that's fine. There's infidelity that, that with the magic babe. Uh, in, sorry. Magic um, baby. The, the, sterile, <laughs> the sterile lady with the magic baby at the end. I, we have this in Christmas films. It's the Christmas oh. miracle. Yeah. Yeah. But maybe it's because abortion is not in porn because really I think some of the stuff that Lauren has, has mentioned ties in with my theory, my personal theory, because I'm not an academic and I'm too lazy to do research. That um <laughs> that a lot of, kind the, of academic. Yes, that a lot of the erotic That doesn't um, preclude you getting a job at a university, I should just say. <laughs> that the erotic themes and situations that we find in romance actually come out of porn. My theory is that women need to actually read more porn so that this stuff is just kind of normal reading material. It isn't. I guess I would argue that, glorify, that some of it. I would argue that we're getting to a point where that's, that got, that's actually okay of now. Erotica, romance, and porn is yeah, a little like bit more next, acceptable. Because there I used to be so. a time where if you if you equated romance with porn, it would be like. You've betrayed. Well, that's why I asked the question about the Fifty Shades of Grey, Mm. because I could imagine that there'd be camps that were sort of dueling in terms of where we place this genre wise. I mean, like I personally. Like the sci-fi people who are almost militant about what gets slotted in where. Yeah. Which I mean, so my, my personal kind of line of that is that I think that Fifty Shades of Grey is erotica, but I think that there are other books that I've read that I would definitely call porn. Like I don't really have anything against like to me I don't stigmatize porn in that sense so for me calling a romance book slightly pornographic doesn't really bother me but I try not to do it because I know it bothers a lot of readers and authors particularly Mm -hmm. people who would say I'm not someone who watches or listens or reads porn that that's an identity marker that's important to them I could imagine that there's a well that's the path I don't go down what's Mm -hmm. interesting to me is how we romanceify porn so double penetration is a is a thing that I, I'm pretty sure came from porn, but in romance that becomes uh, an expression of adoration of the heroine, that she has two guys sort of giving her place. And a, that this becomes a, a symbol. It's a gift that her hero it gives a gift, her. Right. Depending on the book. Happy, yeah. second penis. Happy birthday. <laughs> there is a double penis book we should mention. I always like to like. As in the man has two? Yes. It, it, I read, a, read an article about a man who yeah. has this in real life. He, he participated in a kind of Reddit questionnaire and, you know, can you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, no I remember like that. This is like a fan- fantasy romance. He has two penises, and not only does he have two penises, while they're in the middle of orgiastic pleasure, there's this little um, protrusion that comes out and cleans up after him. To- like one of those dental things that sucks the spit. Yes, and and cl- closes uh, like heals any sort of friction burns or any accidental cuts in the female to prolong her pleasure. Which I thought a polite <laughs> penis. Cannot have enough. Of I'm that almost in speechless. <laughs> <laughs> look, well, look, just to, I mean, because I recently read that book. Did um, you really? Yeah, I did. Um, I'm going to lose it's... friends by recommending oh my this God. book. I can already tell. But the second, the second penis retracts. It's not all the time. So you could just have it's single just... penetration, and then for special for occasions, the most, for the most part, it's single, and then special. And then it's, it's the special second penis. When when it's when a full he, moon special penis. It's for like it's when everyone's ripe for conception, basically. We want to just double like hedging <laughs> our bets, yeah, but but like placement wise, you it really... means that she's getting double pen- penetration. At, well, like... we're assuming he's not putting both into. No, uh, it's not, not vaginal. Like it, mm. yeah. And then, like, well, well, it's look, a gift. I know. I mean, on that note, <laughs> we need to let you. You go. need to throw me out. <laughs> 
Thank you very much for having me. It's been a delight. Thank, Thank you, you for joining us. Anytime. That's all we have time for in this episode. You can find the show notes at bookthingo.com.au slash podcast. Just click on episode 44. Massive thanks to Rudy Bremer, our audio producer, who organized this podcast recording at the drop of a hat when she found out that Lauren was going to be in Sydney. If you have any feedback or suggestions, you can send me a tweet at bookthingo or send an email to podcast at bookthingo.com.au. For International Podcast Day last week, Rudy and I did a bonus episode about our favorite podcasts, and we asked you to let us know what your favorites are. Since then, we've been sent a couple of great ones. Sarah says she's now downloaded Word Up and Every Musical Ever to give them a try. And in the meantime, we should check out Which Please, a Harry Potter fan podcast from Canada. Katrin recommended that Rudy check out The Generation Y as a way of indulging her murderous interests. I think that one is for Rudy, possibly not so much for me. And Rudy has since started listening to another indie Aussie podcast called Touchdown, which is an entire podcast full of the hottest takes on Australian Idol. Or at least as hot as a take can be for a show that was on TV in 2003. Also, a shout out to Aztec Lady, who left a comment in the show notes for that episode. She said, for the record, you are absolutely delightful. Never let anyone say otherwise. Thank you, AZ. Gonna put this on a graphic so I can send it to Rudy and Gabby whenever they try to bully me again. Just kidding? But maybe I'm not. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do leave us a review on iTunes. This will help other readers find the show with the added bonus that you will give us the warm and fuzzies. You can also visit bookthingo.com.au to check out reviews and opinions from a bunch of readers from down under including Rudy and me. In the next episode, we begin our series of interviews with the hashtag romance class community. I chat with some of the authors and bloggers involved, as well as the community of actors who have been bringing romance class stories to life through live reading events. Until then, I hope you have a fabulous fortnight of reading.